Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And welcome to the very special summer edition of Lost in Science. You're with Claire and today I'm going to introduce you to our summer series in collaboration with Laboratory, the science storytelling night once a month in Melbourne where scientists, researchers, comedians get up and tell the story of their favourite scientists. First up, we've got Atlanta colleague, comedian, nursing student and development worker who is going to be talking about Jane Goodall, everyone's favourite primatologist, followed by Lost in Science's very own Chris Lassig, who's going to be talking all about Xian Shong Wu, nuclear physicist extraordinaire. On with the Labora stories. My talk tonight is a study of a woman who studied chimps. I like the, the woo just for woman there. That was an easy to please audience. That's great. Um, it was a study of a woman who studied chimps, and the chimps were studying termites, and the termites were probably studying something, but no one asked them. I am talking about the British primatologist and anthropologist Jane Goodall. <laughs> Now, I'm going to make a confession to all of you, uh, and it will surprise some of you and disgust others among you. For the first hour and a half of researching Jane Goodall, I thought uh, she was Diane Fossey. <laughs> Did. Uh, I knew uh, from the film starring Sigourney Weaver that she'd been brutally murdered, and when our wonderful host of the evening, Danny, said that she'd met her recently, that should have been enough to twig that maybe... I had the wrong person. It wasn't. Uh, I got two hours in before I realised chimpanzees and gorillas are different and um, Jane Goodall's very much alive. Bless her health. And we are sadly missing Diane Fossey. Now, some of you laugh. I know there's a percentage of you who thought the same thing. So don't get on your high horses. (laughs) It's a good start to any talk insulting the audience. Step one. Um, Now, Goodall's passion for chimps is a story of life imitating art. She had no connection in her childhood to the wilds of Africa or primates. She was born in 1934 in middle-class gentility of Bournemouth in London. And she fell in love with animals and Africa from Dr. Doolittle books and Tarzan films. Uh, She often makes the joke that Tarzan married the wrong Jane. (laughs) She said it. I don't care if you don't find it funny. (laughs) Jane uh, said that she dreamed a man's dream. She dreamed of adventures. But there was no clear path from the life that she led, how she would even get there. So she went to school and she took a secretarial course. But in 1957, a friend invited her to come and visit them in Kenya and she jumped at the chance. And once she was there, she took it on herself to actually contact 
Dr. Lewis Leakey, uh, the famous paleoanthropologist. Uh, many of you would know Leakey's family discovered uh, and cemented the theory that humans evolved in Africa, not in Asia, as previously thought with the specimens that they discovered. And she called him out of the blue and she led with the opener, I'd love to come and talk to you about animals. Which was, she said later, was a bit pathetic, but it worked. He, uh, he totally met up with her and this move completely changed her life. Um, so Leakey hired her as his secretary and they went on adventures together, which included scaling a gorge to escape a lion and in the process coming face to face with an angry rhinoceros. None of this her secretarial course had prepared her for. But it only inspired her on, and at the age of 26, with no scientific education to speak of, Leakey sent her to Tanzania. He'd been looking for someone to study chimpanzees in order to find evidence of the shared ancestry between humans and great apes. Previous studies of primates had been limited to animals in, capacity, in, sorry, in, in captivity, which Leakey believed completely affected and limited the results that people were getting. And Leakey actually saw Goodall's lack of scientific education uh, as a benefit, as it meant that she was, quote-unquote, unfettered by reductionist scientific theory uh, of the time. So Goodall was the first of three researchers that Leakey recruited, and this might actually explain my my mistakes earlier. The two, the other two were Biruta Galdikas, who he sent to Indonesia to study orangutans, and Diane Fossey. See, there we go, they were linked. Uh, who studied gorillas in Rwanda. And the three of them uh, were called his trimates. <laughs> and uh, they were known in the scientific community as Leakey's angels. Uh, Galdigas, like Goodall, is going strong. The fate of Fosse, uh, as many of you would have seen in Gorillas in the Mist, was grim, and she was murdered in 1985 after trying to punish several local people after they attacked some of the gorillas that she loved. Now, Leakey's interests in his posse turned out not to be purely scientific. In his late 50s, married with three children, he apparently bombarded Goodall with declarations of his love and Goodall said that this put her in a very difficult position because on one hand she hugely admired him, he had her whole future in his hands, on the other she said, no thanks, (laughs) a man using his position of authority to push romantic intentions on a woman, how unusual. Their friendship apparently survived this incident and Goodall went off to Gombe Stream Reserve in Tanzania to study chimpanzees. Now, Goodall says that being a woman actually was an advantage in Gombe. At the time, they had just been emerging from colonialism and white males were seen as a bit threatening and intimidating. That stands. Um, uh, But as a woman, she was considered weak and people wanted to help her. So Goodall uh, says the most important quality of living in the jungle was patience. At first, her attempts to observe the chimps failed. She could, only, she could not even get within 500 yards before the chimps fled. At other times, they grew violent and attacked her camp. She only had funding from the Royal Geographic Society for six months. She needed to prove quickly that her study was of value. 
Now the chimpanzees began to tolerate her presence within a year and allowed her to move as close as 30 feet. And then after two years, they started to come in search of her for bananas. She called it the banana club, a daily systematic feeding method she used to gain trust and study their behavior. She imitated them, she spent time in the trees, and she ate their foods. Goodall gave all of the chimps names. The names were David Greybeard, Flint, Goliath, Passion, Frodo, and Fifi. Then one day Goodall watched a large male chimp foraging for food, and through her binoculars she saw him take a twig, bend it, strip off the leaves and stick it into a termite's nest. Then he spooned termites into his mouth. And this changed everything. This was one of the most important scientific observations of modern times. It was the first recorded example of a primate not only using a tool, but of making one. And the standard definition of a human at that time, distinguishing humans from every other species, was as the tool maker. And humans could no longer have just that title. So she telegraphed Leakey with the news and he said, now we must redefine man, redefine tools, or accept chimpanzees as humans. The discovery secured funding for Goodall to continue her study and she observed chimps patting each other, kissing, hugging, and even tickling each other in the same context that humans might do the same thing. She observed a primitive language system with over 20 individual sounds. She observed uh, that they experienced adolescence, developed powerful mother and child bonds, and could even trick each other to get what they wanted. And she concluded that chimps had awareness and emotions similar to humans, that they had a concept of self and of other, that they were capable of compassion and altruism, and they could even have a sense of humour. And she says one of her biggest learnings was about child psychology uh, and about what makes a good chimp mother, mainly being patient, playful and protective and helping out if your kid gets into a fight. She was raising her own son at the time and she actually says she was heavily influenced by chimp mother (laughs) behaviour. Her research also busted the myth that chimps were vegetarian and peaceful. She saw gangs of chimps kill each other, which was a shock for Goodall, who thought that chimps were like humans, but nicer. And chimps, she saw them hunting colobus monkeys, taking the carcass back to the group to share, and found out that chimps at Gombe actually killed and ate as much as one-third of the colobus population in the entire park each year. Her research challenged the belief that our mental capacities, once thought to be uniquely human, were recently evolved and socially acquired, but they may have been inherited from common ancestors that Homo sapiens shared with chimpanzees six million years ago. For all the similarities Goodall saw between chimps and humans, she also found the differences. The brain of a chimp, she said, and the brain of a human are not that different anatomically. And while chimps could communicate through sounds and gestures, they couldn't sit and discuss things. They, they couldn't benefit from the collective wisdom of the group or project into the future. Chimps do, can do all sorts of things that we do, but when you look at their intellects, even the brightest chimp looks like a very small child. 
Goodall's methodology in studying chimps was heavily criticised by the scientific community. She wrote about childhood and adolescence and motivation and mood. She gave the chimps names and wrote about their personalities. And the scientists were very sensitive at the time about giving human attributes to animals. Anthropomorphism was seen as very unscientific. And Goodall was told she should have given the chimps numbers rather than names. To quote, and she thought this was just complete nonsense. Uh, I love this quote. Uh, She says, you cannot share your life with a dog or a cat and not know perfectly well that animals have personalities and minds and feelings. You know it, and I think every single one of the scientists knew it too, but because they couldn't prove it, they wouldn't talk about it. But I did talk about it. In a way, my dog Rusty gave me the courage of my convictions. (laughs) Leakey was desperate for his protege to gain some academic respectability. Uh, But Goodall just didn't care and she didn't want to become a professor. She only wanted to get a degree because Leakey said that she needed one. So she got a PhD in ethology from Cambridge University and she was the eighth person ever to receive a PhD without first getting a bachelor's degree. Her publications have always been infamous for their ability to span the world of academic science and popular entertainment. She captured imaginations of the animal world of social drama, comedy and tragedy. In the way her life imitated art, art now imitates Gooder's life. Uh, She's been the topic of over 40 films and she's written 26 books for adults and children. And now she tours the world for 300 days of the year as the global population of chimpanzees has gone from 2 million to less than 150,000 and she raises awareness of the destruction through habitat loss and bushmeat trade. And I think one of my favourite facts about her is wherever she travels, she has a pouch with a little bit of limestone in it that she took from Robben Island uh, of Nelson Mandela's prison uh, to remind herself of how when he emerged, he did so with so little bitterness and with so much hope to lead his people. And I think it's very hard for us to quantify the full impact of Goodall's work, but she does remind us that we can never know ourselves by simply studying ourselves alone. Thank you so much. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to A Lost in Science. Thank you very much. We are talking about the theme of perfection tonight. So, and I know we've been, you've been challenged now to talk about you know, what perfection actually means, but I want to ask you a question. Do we already live in a perfect universe? No, it's a dumb question. Yeah, yeah. I, look, I, I, know, I know. I mean, yeah, life is full of ups and downs. If, um, if I can like, use a very current internet moment, some days you're the seal, some days you're the kayaker. <laughs> Most days I just feel like the octopus. But no, this is actually a serious scientific question. So, because physicists use their kind of this ideal of perfection as a guide to coming up with theories about the universe. And one of the big ones is symmetry. So, you know, kind of this idea that there are, the universe basically at a fundamental level is, is got all kinds of different symmetries. Uh, this is very useful, particularly in the 20th century. It led to theories that are so precise that we need machines the size of the Large Hadron Collider to, to measure them. Currently, the Large Hadron Collider is trying to find signs of something called supersymmetry, which, um, not the topic of my talk, let's just say it's pretty super, but there's no evidence for it at all. So, you know, physicists are prepared to spend billions of other people's euros trying to find something that probably doesn't exist. That's how much they care about symmetry and perfection. 
But is, it, is this right? Is this misguided? Okay, this isn't the first time that someone has asked this question. Uh, and uh, to look at one of the notable examples of that, let us choose a, a more obvious symmetry. So the symmetry between left and right. Okay, um, now again, the everyday world is not totally symmetrical. If I could have a hands up now, who here is left-handed? Hands up if you're left-handed. Left hand up if you're left-handed. A few right hands up if you're right-handed. Both hands up if you're ambidextrous. Hey, there we go. Okay, so we are not symmetrical. Uh, you know, the whole, they tell us the, the perfect face is symmetrical left and right. I'm going to say, I mean, most of you are pretty symmetrical, I've got to say. But um, the question is, is the world, is the universe at a fundamental level symmetrical between left and right? Like, if you were to reflect the entire universe in a mirror, would it still work the same way? Or is Alice through the looking glass kind of scientifically accurate? This is where my science hero, uh, Madame Chen Sheng Wu, comes in. Um, I don't speak Chinese, so I'm going to apologise for the pronunciations here. Uh, I'm going to do my best. Um, it probably should actually be Wu Chen Sheng, because the family name comes first, and, oh, look, we're already swapping around the order of things in the mirror. It's amazing, isn't it? But I'm going to stick with the, the westernised version, call her Chen Sheng Wu. Um, Chen Sheng Wu, she was, she was born in 1912 in a town called Liu Hei, uh, which is a fishing port on the Yangtze River, um, not far from Shanghai in China. Uh, so this was at the very end of over 2,000 years of imperial Chinese history and the beginning of the First Republic of China. So the country was starting to modernise very quickly and one of the, one of the consequences of modernisation was more gender equality, more rights for women. And uh, Chen Sheng's parents were, they were part of this progressive movement. Her father in particular, Zhong Yi Wu, he was an engineer and he he founded a school for girls in, in Liu Hei, partly so his daughter could get a good education, which she did. She, um, she did very well at school. She particularly excelled in science. Then she found a biography of Marie Curie, and basically her path was set. So she went to university. Uh, she studied physics. She also, um, you know, she got top marks at the university, but she also was a leader of student politics. You know, she did a bit of everything. But when she graduated, she hit her first real obstacle. Because although China was modernising quickly, it still didn't have any graduate programs for physics. So her supervisor uh, told Chen Sheng to do what she had done herself, which was to go to America to get her PhD and then come back. And so that's how, in 1937, Chen Sheng Wu boarded a ship to travel to the United States. Now, America wasn't terribly great for her at first. Um, obviously, there was a bit of prejudice against Asians, so that's terribly surprising. Um, she also, she didn't, like, she struggled with the language uh, and the culture and the customs. Uh, she was very proud of her Chinese identity. In fact, um, all her life, she wore the, it's called the Chi Pao, you know, the, um, the high-necked dress, otherwise known as the Chong Sam, you know the one? Yes, it gets a visual picture here. Um, also, America was... It was a lot more sexist than she was used to. Uh, she turned down a spot at the University of Michigan because when she found out that women had to enter the building from a side door, they weren't allowed to use the front entrance. Uh, later on, she worked at Princeton University, and Princeton didn't allow women students until about the 1960s. So, yeah, America was a lot more sexist than China in those days, and she found that quite difficult. So she was quite pleased that she was going to go back home eventually. The trouble was that uh, events of the 20th century got in the way. Um, 
In late 1937, which is about a year after she had gone to America, Japanese troops invaded Shanghai and marched towards Nanjing, so via her hometown. In Nanjing, of course, they they murdered and raped uh, between 40,000 and 300,000 civilians. So, yeah, she couldn't really go home. So instead, she had to try and build a life in America. She she met and married another Chinese physicist, uh, Luke Yuan, and she built a reputation as a good scientist herself. It became known that if you had a tricky problem, you you would ask Miss Wu and she would solve it for you. And when America finally entered the um, the war, she was one of the many physicists recruited to join the Manhattan Project to build an atomic bomb. Um, She wasn't the only woman. There were actually hundreds of women involved in the Manhattan Project, but you don't really hear about them much in history books, so... Her greatest achievement, though, was uh, a couple, about a decade after the war, in late 1956. There was a whole lot of new uh, subatomic particles being discovered, and many of them had these strange new properties, and physicists were starting to ponder, some of them were starting to ponder whether this symmetry between left and right at the fundamental level uh, would, actually, would actually be conserved, would, that, would actually true the universe was symmetrical. Uh, in particular with something called beta decay. And beta decay is a kind of radioactive decay. It's what happens when a, a nucleus gives off an electron and a neutrino and transforms to a different element. It's, um, it's controlled by what's called the weak nuclear force. Uh, it's called the weak nuclear force because it's weaker than the strong nuclear force. <laughs> people say physics is complicated, but really... Anyway, so yeah, people were speculating that the weak nuclear force and beta decay was not symmetrical between left and right. And among the people speculating were these uh, two other Chinese-American physicists called um, Tsung Dao Li and Chen Ning Yang. Uh, now, Li was a friend of uh, Chen Sheng Wu's and knew that she was the go-to person for beta decay. So he talked to her about how they could do an experiment to test this idea. And they come with this idea of using cobalt-60 atoms because uh, the, the cobalt atoms... Um, they're kind of like little tiny magnets. And when they decay with beta decay, they give off electrons out of the poles. So the idea is that if, they, if the universe is symmetrical, they should give off electrons in both directions. Uh, but if they give off in one direction preferred, then you know that things aren't symmetrical at the basic level. So they had to basically align all these atoms together using a strong magnetic field and had to have at very, very cold temperatures, only like uh, a few thousandths of a degree above absolute zero. The only place they could do that was at the National Bureau of Standards in Washington. So they arranged that and they had everything ready to go for this experiment. Um, trouble was that uh, Chen Xiang, she, had, she and her husband had already booked tickets on the Queen Elizabeth to go back to, travel back to Asia. It had been like 20 years since they'd been home at all. And um, they weren't actually able to go to mainland China because by this stage... Uh, uh, Mao Zedong, his communist regime was in power in China and the US government would not let its citizens travel to, to China. Uh, but they could still go to Taiwan and Hong Kong and so there was a chance they could meet up with their family. You know, Chen Sheng Wu, she was the kind of scientist who was so dedicated she would just, you know, when she got back for a trip she would drive, get me the taxi driver, drive past the laboratory so she could see if anyone was working late at night. She was so dedicated, there was no way she was going to pass up an experiment to test a fundamental principle of the universe. So she stayed home and her husband went off on his own. This was in late 1956. Uh, she set this experiment up. She had to commute back and forth between Washington and New York where she was teaching. Uh, and it was Christmas Eve 1956 that uh, she was able to... She took the train back. Um, it was a very harsh winter. But all the airports were closed. And she was, she was able to give some of the first ideas of her, 
or results of experiment to, um, to Tsung Dao Lee. Now, people are already sort of starting to wonder, because this is going on for a while, this experiment, people are wondering what the results are going to be. Uh, famous physicists like Richard Feynman and Wolfgang Pauli were placing bets that symmetry would be conserved. Some people are even saying, why do the experiment in the first place? We all know the universe has to be symmetrical at its fundamental level. But she found that basically the electrons are all coming out of the south pole of, of the atoms. Um, and yeah, symmetry, symmetry was not conserved. By the time that she published the results in January 1957, other physicists had heard the news, people had started doing their own experiments and trying to replicate and verify our findings, and it was proved, and everyone basically accepted that the universe was fundamentally changed. So, um, so the way it actually works, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, the way it works is that the, the weak nuclear force, which I was talking about, it only acts on certain kinds of particles. So um, if you can all hold up your left hand like this and curl your fingers around and stick your thumb out, okay? So if your thumb is... This is the, if your hand is a particle and your thumb is the direction the particle is moving and the fingers curled around represent the way it's spinning, that is what we call the left-handed particle. And it's only left-handed particles that the weak nuclear force acts on. If you flip it in the mirror you get a right-handed particle, and that doesn't interact with the weak nuclear force. So who are those left-handed people again? Congratulations, the universe is left-handed. You guys win. <laughs> it was a massive, it was a massive ex um, experiment, a huge result, and it was so big that it, uh, it was awarded the Nobel Prize later that year in 1957 to uh, Li and Yang. Um, Chen Shengwu missed out on the, uh, on the Nobel Prize. Yeah... Don't worry, it gets worse. Because she'd done the experiment. It was a very important experiment, but she'd done this. She'd um, sacrificed a chance to, to go home and visit her family. So the next time she got a chance to travel was in 1962. Uh, she caught up with her uncle and her younger brother in Hong Kong. But in the intervening years, her father, her mother, and her older brother had all died. Um, due to the government travel restrictions, she wasn't able to go to China to, to go to their funerals. Um, yeah, so all she could do was uh, meet up with um, her uncle and, and other brother. Uh, she didn't actually get to, get, get to go to mainland China until 1973, which is after Richard Nixon had his big uh, kind of breaking of the relations. And by that stage, her uncle and brother had also been killed in Mao's Cultural Revolution, and her parents being intellectuals, their tombs had been destroyed. Not a happy story. Um, like, this story is about symmetry. Like, it's meant to be about the symmetry and whether we our ideas of perfection can be imposed on the universe. And uh, Chen Shengwu showed us that it doesn't work that way, that uh, what we have to do is we have to accept the universe the way it is. We do our experiments, we find out how it is, and we find, learn to find beauty and perfection in, in what's really there. But the human world is different. The human world, like she found herself many... Uh, cases of asymmetry, you know, between women and men, between East and West, between communists and capitalists. And what she showed is that, with her own life, is that you just don't accept these things, you have to challenge them. So Chen Xiangwu, she became the, the first person who wasn't a white man to be president of the American Physical Society. Uh, all her life she, um, she campaigned for gender equality in American science, including equal pay. Uh, she spoke out against human rights abuses in both Taiwan and China, particularly after the um, Tiananmen Square massacre. Uh, yeah, and she, she uh, eventually died of a stroke herself in 1997, and her ashes were taken to her back to her hometown and buried in the courtyard of the girls' school that her father had founded. I mentioned like her family name was Wu, her given name was Qian Cheng. Uh, Qian Cheng in Chinese apparently means courageous hero. So I think you'll agree that was um, a very good name for her. Thank you.
That brings us to the end of another episode of Lost in Science, our special summer edition. Thank you for listening and thank you to Atlanta Collie and to Chris Lassig for the recordings of their Labora stories from earlier on in 2018. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR and broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Please get in touch with us. You can find us at lostinsci at gmail.com, on Twitter at lostinscience1 or lostinscience on 3CR on Facebook as well. Or tune in again next week for the final Lost in Science Laboratory Summer Special. Catch you then. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.